I would like to begin this morning with a, a question. You notice I don't do that very often. I don't, I don't start with a question. There's a story behind that. We don't need to get into it. Um, but I want to start with a question this morning. Um, and as, as I'm prefacing this, if you'd go ahead and open to Mark chapter 5 in your Bibles. But the question is, what's the most important feature on your cell phone? What is the, of all the different apps and features and all that stuff on your cell phone, what's the most important one? If you had to get by with just one, what would it be? That's a question I'm looking for answers that's not simply rhetorical. So, The what? The phone mark? Yeah? The ability to call. Okay, right. PowerPoint. Power button. I suppose that's 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 probably good. That would that'd be a good answer. Yeah. Other ideas. The what? The text function. Okay. Yes. Anything you want. Okay. So like you can search your blue letter Bible kind of a thing, okay. That's as opposed to searching like where to buy a milkshake or something like that, okay. Um, what else? Any other? Contact list. Bingo. That's my vote. And, and here's the reason I say that. For me, it's actually a tie between the contact list and the photographs because that's the only thing that's not on anybody else's phone. I mean, let's face it, most of us here are probably not more than like three feet from somebody else that has a phone, right? So like if you had to, you could borrow their phone. There's a phone in the kitchen, you know, if you had to. But you lose that contact list. Um, I, I ran this question by the kitchen crew yesterday. Um, just wanted to see how it would go. A lot of, got some new employees in the kitchen. And I came in, I said, so what's the most important feature on your phone? And they all said, you know, the ability to call. I said, no, no, it's the contact list. And one of the new employees said, I have all my contacts memorized. I said, well, good for you. <laughs> no, no, no empathy at all there at all. So, yeah. So we're, we're talking about contacts this morning. That's the reason for all of that. Um, last Sunday, we looked at the first part of chapter 5 here in Mark. And um, we saw Jesus do an incredible thing, you know, cast the demons out of this poor guy that had a, literally a legion thousand maybe demons in him. We don't know the exact number. Um, and I said there were three major miracles in this chapter. Um, that was the first. And then the rest of the chapter is the other two. But the two are a little bit different in how they're presented. Because they're presented woven together. You know, it starts with one, goes to the other, comes back to the first one. And so we're going to look at those, those second two, the second half of the chapter, uh, together, right? Um, because I believe the two of them are, worn, are, are woven rather together deliberately. There's a single message that the two of them convey. So um, let's just go ahead and, and get right into it. Verse 21, we're going to start with just the first four verses. Mark writes, When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered about him, and he stayed by the seashore. And one of the synagogue officials named Yedis came up, and upon seeing him, fell at his feet, 
and entreated him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her that she may get well and live. And he went off with him, and a great multitude was following him and pressing in on him. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we look to you this morning, Father, with an expectancy of heart that you will speak to us, show us the truth that we need. It is a truth, Father, that we need this day in the world in which we live. So we look to you, Father, with confidence. Amen. So we got two really well-known incidences. Uh, starts with the healing of the, or raising from the dead, actually, uh, the daughter of the synagogue official, and then it goes to the woman who had had for 12 years uh, constant hemorrhaging, had been bleeding for 12 years. Uh, together, they tell us something extraordinary about our Lord, right? And we have to remind you, Mark is very careful about what he writes. It's the shortest gospel. He's very selective. So for Mark to take these two and weave them together the way he did, we can't help but expect something really significant. And so what I want to do is just work through the rest of the chapter, look at these two events, uh, and then focus on their point of convergence. There's a very important point at which these two incidents, these two miracles converge. And then finally ask the question, of course, how that speaks to us. So first of all, uh, to look at the two miracles. First, the daughter of Jairus, the synagogue official. Jesus and his disciples had been over on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. They went there, got out of the boat, cast out some demons, got back in the boat and left. Pretty short trip. And when they get back to the western side, they're greeted by a synagogue official. Archisynagogos. It's not a great word. It's just kind of a fun word. Archisynagogos. It just means the guy in charge of the synagogue. Now, he would not have been, this person would not have been like a priest, would not have been you know, a Levite or a Pharisee. This was, was kind of an administrator, right? They were, they were selected from within the community, chosen by the elders of the community, with one real job, and that is to make sure that things that happened in the synagogue went smoothly. Right? So, for example, in another passage in Luke's gospel, uh, when Jesus casted, you know, or healed the guy with a withered hand on the Sabbath, it was the synagogue ruler, Archisynagogos guy, who got really upset because that upset the synagogue, right? When you do stuff in a synagogue that causes an uproar, this is the guy that you're going to have to deal with. His job is to see to it that things go smoothly, right? Not necessarily somebody like a Pharisee who would be opposed to Jesus on, you know, theological grounds or scriptural grounds, but would probably not just be real happy to see Jesus come through the door, simply because that usually meant commotion in the synagogue. Not, not a big fan, not a big fan. But he comes to Jesus, and it's a pretty drastic step, because I don't think it's, it's too much to say, uh, given the fact this is a town Jesus is known in. He's got a track record here. Last time he was in this synagogue, they were trying to kill him. That uh, coming up to Jesus publicly like this was probably not a really good idea. Uh, it's very possible the man was putting his very job on the line, but it's a risk he's clearly willing to take for good reason. His daughter, his little daughter, 12 years old we later find out, is at the point of death. Now it's a really interesting word that's used. It's not the word for death that's used, it's the word eskatos. She is at her eskatos, and eskatos comes right into English as exit. So we, that exit sign, that's right from that word. So if you can imagine, his daughter is standing in the door. She's that close to the other side. This is a man with an extraordinary need. And because of the size of his need, he is prepared 
to risk quite a bit, publicly approaching Jesus and falling on his knees before him. So that brings us to verse 25, where we get our first look at the second event, what will actually be the first miracle, second event, first miracle. Verse 25, a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but had rather grown worse, after hearing about Jesus, came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I shall get well. And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up. She felt in her body. She was healed of her affliction. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? His disciples said to him, You see the multitude pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he, that is Jesus, looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to him, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your Affliction. It's like a great big parenthesis in the synagogue ruler's story. Because the synagogue ruler comes to Jesus and he approaches Jesus and he falls on his feet. He says, my daughter is dying. She's standing in the door. She's going to be gone at any moment. Please come heal her. Lay her hands on her. She'll be well. And they, they march off with this whole big mob and they get interrupted all of a sudden. And remember, the first thing the mob is conscious of is Jesus' statement, who touched me? Because they don't know anything about the lady. She snuck up behind him and touched the hem of his clothes, right? Um, this lady's problem is so much bigger than the physical. Her problem is, is so much bigger than that. She has been bleeding, we would assume menstrual bleeding, for 12 years without stop, no help. She is desperate. She is ceremonially unclean. She's completely separated from society, according to the Levitical law. Anyone that touches her becomes ceremonially unclean. If she touches anyone, she is ceremonially unclean. Um, even an unclean person wouldn't want to touch her. Because with uncleanliness, for a person, there was like a clock. Like if you did certain things, there was a clock. You would be unclean until evening. Or you'd be unclean for seven days. Well, if even an unclean person who's like on the clock touches her, that clock resets, right? So even an unclean person wouldn't want to be in contact with this poor woman. Her situation is absolutely desperate. And, and this is not according to the Levitical law, this is according to the traditions, but the traditions are what they lived under. If she knowingly, consciously touched someone, it was also a criminal offense because she had knowingly made somebody else unclean. And the two, as far as the traditions and the, and the legal system were concerned, the two worst people for her to knowingly, consciously touch are a rabbi or a priest. And her very intent is to touch a rabbi and our high priest. That's her intent. So she's in a really, really... She's in a bad place. She's got a really serious problem, you know, as far as the culture was concerned. And she approaches Jesus thinking, if I only touch his garment, Matthew records her words as being, if I just touch the hem of his garment. Now, there's two ways to take that, and I would suggest they're probably both true. One is a statement of her faith. 
All I have to do is just get the corner of his garment. And that would have been consistent with some Hebraic teaching. Just the hem of the garment was enough. But the other thing, I think, is an insight to her humanity. That human nature, you know, like when you catch your kid doing something, and they say, but I was only I was just. You know, when we're going to do something that we know is likely to get us in trouble, often we, we, we ready our excuse, our justification by saying, I was just, right? Minimize the significance of what we did wrong. I would suggest in this woman's thinking, that's where her head is. If I get busted, I can always say, I didn't actually touch the rabbi. I did, just touched his garment. So I think you got both things going. She got tremendous faith and at the same time, that human element of wanting to minimize what we may be doing that might get us in trouble. This is where the connection, by the way, between the two, these two events really starts to, be, to become, I think, clear, right? Both of these individuals are running significant risk, more than the usual risk of approaching Jesus and asking for help, right? Um... But there are also some real big difference. I mean, they both had faith. That's clear. They both had a sense of who Jesus was. That's clear. But what really shows out uh, are the differences in these two events. The synagogue ruler, if you look carefully, approached Jesus from the front. Jesus landed at the shore. The synagogue ruler came from the community with the crowd. And it says he fell on his knees before Jesus. So the synagogue ruler came to Jesus right up front. And why wouldn't he? He's a synagogue ruler. This is a man of stature. This is a man of status. If anybody would have confidence approaching Jesus in this community, it'd be this guy, right? So he approaches Jesus from the front. The woman, rather, approaches Jesus from behind. Her intent is to remain completely anonymous if possible. Her goal is to move in, touch his garment, Get the healing that she needs and move out with nobody even noticing. That's her plan. Because that's the only way she's going to get away with it in her thinking, right? Okay. So they have this different approach. The synagogue ruler comes to Jesus with an actually pretty detailed list. His wish list is, is somewhat developed. I want you to come with me. Now, I mean, that assumes what? Jesus has nothing better he's doing, right? Lord, I want you to stop what you're doing and come with me to my house, probably clear on the other side of town. He would have probably lived on the upper side of town, right? Stop what you're doing, come with me, come into my house, lay your hands on my daughter, and then heal her, boom. The woman's, actually the woman doesn't have any request at all. She's not going to actually ask Jesus for anything. Her hope is that her voice is never even heard, that her face is never even seen. She wants to sneak in, touch Jesus, Notice the difference of what they're trying to tap into. The synagogue ruler wants Jesus to do some things. And his confidence is that what Jesus does will heal his daughter. The woman isn't expecting Jesus to do anything. She has an apprehension or an understanding of Jesus' character such that if I touch him... That healing, that wholeness, that health which is in him, that resident something in him is so powerful that even if he doesn't do anything, simply by touching his character, 
I will be made whole. Extraordinary. Extraordinary woman. If I just touch his garment. Hopefully without even being noticed. Everest is hoping Jesus will do something. The woman is simply counting on who Jesus is. The contrast is so extraordinary. So the woman approaches Jesus, moving quietly through the crowd, rather, touches him. Immediately she is healed. Notice only two people know something has happened. The woman and Jesus. The crowd is oblivious. When Jesus says, who touched me, the question makes no sense to them at all, and reasonably so. He's being packed in from all sides. The woman comes up. Or rather, Jesus says, who touched me? The woman identifies herself. She tells the whole story. Jesus calls her, tells her that all is well, go in peace. Her faith has healed her. Verse 35, the story turns back to the synagogue ruler. Verse 35, while he is still speaking to the woman, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus overheard what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, don't be afraid any longer, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came into the house of the synagogue official, and he beheld a commotion, people loudly weeping and wailing. Entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him, but putting them all out. We could spend a lot of time talking about that phrase. I'll save that for another day. Putting them all out, he took the child's father and mother and his companions, entered the room where the child was, taking the child by the hand. He said to her, Dalitha kum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl rose, began to walk, for she was about 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded. He gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and then he said that something should be given her to eat. As Jesus is speaking to the woman, the messenger arrives saying, your daughter is dead. It's bad news. All the likely made all the more bitter by the fact that her death had occurred during the delay that the woman's needs had resulted in. But Jesus immediately responds because there's every reason to believe in that moment this woman is going to be charged with a serious offense and healed or not is going to suffer the consequences of having been unclean, pushed her way through a crowd, touching every person in the crowd, and then touching the rabbi. Jesus intervenes immediately by telling Jairus not to worry, but to have faith, all will be well. Verses 37 through 42, they go to the man's home. He takes only three. He confronts the mourners, takes the deceased child by the hand and raises her to life and finishes by instructing the family to tell no one, make sure she gets something. It's an extraordinary miracle. So to date, just a little summary, Jesus has demonstrated his power and authority by casting out disease, healing the lame, which is actually, you think about it, a lot different than casting out a disease, that's addressing something, you know, viral or bacterial, lame. He's actually reconstructing bone and tissue. By casting out demons, spiritual entities, he's demonstrated his power and authority over the laws of nature, the whole wind and water thing, um, over religious traditions and offices, even over national and cultural boundaries. He went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and was just as effective there as he had been on the western side. So what is Mark's point by adding these two miracles to that? Is he just trying to rack up more miracles? 
You know, just trying to add to the list of Jesus. What makes these miracles so significant that they have to be included? I would suggest it's the connection between the two. First, again, we've talked about the fact that Jairus was a man of great position and authority. He could approach Jesus, but the woman is nameless, faceless. And by every social standard, and this is not to say by God's standard, but by every social standard of no great significance. She is defined by her illness. She's the woman with the issue of blood. Have you noticed how in a lot of our Bibles we buy into that idea? Especially older Bibles? Like, for example, the first part of chapter 5, if you have, like, not even an older Bible, but any of the Bibles that have the little chapter headings, have you ever noticed those chapter headings read things like, Jesus heals the Gadarene demonic? That's who he is? As opposed to, Jesus healed the man of Gadara who happened to be demon-possessed. We identify people by their illness, and this woman is all too many. She's, even in this context, she's defined by her illness, right? Jairus approaches Jesus openly, publicly from the front. The woman approaches Jesus from inside the crowd and from behind. He has a specific list of wants. She comes with an understanding of who Jesus is. They both have a need. They both run a risk. They both come in faith. So there's points of commonality. There's points of distinction. But the real connection, I think, that makes these two miracles so closely tied together, so important to us, is one small word. There's one small word, and it's so easy to miss. Verse 23, look for the common word. Yet it came, and entreating him said, My little daughter is at the point of death. My little daughter is at the point of death. What makes Yetis willing to take this risk of approaching Jesus publicly? It's his concern, it's his compassion for his little girl, for his daughter. His daughter at the point of death. It's hard to think of a more powerful motive than that. When the woman comes to Jesus and falls before him, confessing all, and Jesus speaks to her, he says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of the affliction. Did you catch the common word? Daughter. Daughter. It's what moved a synagogue official to risk everything to find healing. It's what moved Jesus to go right past every social convention, every expectation of the crowd, and reach out in healing and acceptance. Remember, she's already healed. Her bleeding's already dried up, but what she really needs is his acceptance, and she gets that immediately. Jesus never referred to anybody else in the New Testament by a term of this affinity. Never. Never. He referred to brothers and sisters. He referred to his mother, but this is the only person he ever called daughter. Now, you might suggest he means daughter of Israel or daughter of somebody, that's not really relevant. He calls her daughter. This woman who has lived in complete isolation for 12 years is now called daughter. The parallel between the two is telling. Yaris motivated by care and compassion for a suffering daughter. Jesus motivated by this woman's suffering in the same way. She's somebody's daughter. 
She's someone worthy of compassion. You see, for us, I think the application is, is pretty clear. Chapters 1 through 4 have made it really clear. We've seen Jesus' power and authority in action. He's done all kinds of stuff. He's manifested his power and his authority in all kinds of ways. His holiness is absolute. What this particular portion of Scripture does, what these two miracles link together, is to show us, without any question or limitation, his absolute compassion. His absolute compassion. Jesus' compassion, Jesus' compassion is as absolute, as infinite as his power and authority. I've, actually, I've had pastors or different people come to me and say, well, you know, Jesus' grace isn't infinite. I said, what are you talking about? And, and, and the storyline goes, goes like it goes, well, actually only his holiness is infinite. Because the Bible says Jesus is holy. That's the only time where Jesus, where one thing is equated with God. His character is holy. That's nonsense. Actually, holiness isn't a characteristic of God. Now, before you throw a chair at me, listen carefully. Holiness is not a characteristic of God. Holiness is the sum of all of God's characters together. All taken together, he is holy. The great Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That's a mathematic calculation. Because you cannot divide one into smaller pieces and still have an actual integer. You can have a fraction, but what's that? In order to have an integer... You can't get below one. It is a numeric evaluation of wholeness. He is whole. It's a convenience of language. God is whole. He is complete. He is together. He's lacking nothing. All of his attributes together are what make him holy or what allow us to say he's holy. Nothing makes him holy. He is. But it's what allows us to describe him as holy because all of his characteristics together are what we call his holiness. How can his mercy, his compassion, his love and his grace be anything less than infinite if they emanate from his infinite self? They are an expression of his infinite being. Psalm 86, 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious. There's the equation. His grace and his mercy with his character. Psalm 145, 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful. Grace and mercy are the core of his being. Matthew 8, 1 and 2 is so telling. Jesus said this, or rather Matthew, Mark rather recording it, says this. In those days the multitude being very great and have nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples unto him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude. I have compassion. He doesn't say I am motivated by compassion like it's something external to him. I have compassion. It was resident within his character. See, here's the thing. It's not as though Jesus, and I think this is where this speaks to some, some of us, maybe hopefully all of us. It's not as though Jesus reluctantly chooses to act with compassion. John, I am so tired of you messing up 
but I will still be compassionate towards you. No, that's not him at all. There's no reluctance when Christ acts in compassion. His deep abiding concern for our well-being springs up from his very essential being. This is the confidence we have before him. When we come in prayer asking him to act with compassion towards us, we are asking him just to be who he is. He is compassionate. He is caring. And yes, he is holy, but that's an expression of his completion. That's why he can act in compassion, right? There's a whole other side to this, however, and that is the compassion. That's the, that's, that's the best part, is that when we come to him in prayer, whatever we're asking, we're not asking him to do something out of his character. We're asking him to be who he is, and that's our confidence. I am so good. You know? We say that God is good, right? It's good that God, that God is good. What if he wasn't good, but he was still God? What would you do with that? Yeah, but God is good. It's his being, right? There's another side to that, and that is the compassion that we are bound to share with others. Matthew 18, Jesus said, he's talking about that guy that was forgiven the big debt but struggled to forgive the other guy, right? He said this, should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I have had mercy on you? So to the extent we have been shown compassion, it's only reasonable that we would show compassion. Now, here's the good part about that. You know, we're all, we all have that angle in us. we got to do it, right? we got to do this Christian thing. So an opportunity presents itself where we have to show compassion, and we find ourselves going, okay, let's see if I can gin up some compassion in my heart because i got to act with compassion toward this person and I really don't want to, and I'm really tired, or I'm, I just don't want to, so let's see if I, can, if I can somehow make myself be compassionate, right? Hear this, though, from John, 1 John 3.17. It, it, it kind of, almost like threatening in a way, but it's actually really good news. John writes, whoever has, his worldly, whoever has worldly goods and sees his brother or sister in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God remain in him? Now, that's a challenging scripture, right? That's kind of an in-your-face scripture. If you have the worldly goods and you see your brother in need and you don't respond in compassion, but you close your heart, how can the love of God abide in you? That's, that kind of gets in our face a little bit. But there's actually a really good message buried in there. Right? Because John doesn't say, this is how we tend to read it, we tend to read John as saying, whoever perceives his brother in need and chooses not to act compassionately. That's how we read it. But that's not what John says. What John says is, whoever closes his heart, what takes a deliberate effort isn't being compassionate. What takes a deliberate effort is not being compassionate. Because if we are born again, if we are filled with the Spirit, we've been saying all year, Christ's character formed in us, that we can manifest his character to the world. If the spirit of Christ dwells in us, compassion should emanate from our being due to the fact that he dwells in us. And if we will simply open our hearts and our minds and our lives to who he is in us, it'll be easier to be compassionate than to not be compassionate. How many have had that experience? really inconvenienced by the situation, but something inside me compels to respond. That is not of me. 
That is of the Christ who dwells within me. The Christ who dwells within me by his spirit is the one that is motivating me from the inside to be Christ in that moment. That's the good news. It's not as though we somehow need to find compassion or generate compassion. It is the character of Christ formed in us expressing his compassion. You know, we live in a time, we heard it this morning in our prayer because we live in a time, I'll end with this, where we're confronted by need constantly. We are constantly confronted by people with needs. And we, if we are honest, can grow weary in responding. So the prayer we need to pray in that moment is not, Lord, make me compassionate, but Lord, help me find the compassion that is already there because you're there. Lord, help me find the compassion that is in me that is not of me but is of you. And we can be confident that's a prayer he will answer. We can be confident that the world will see it. Be mindful of the woman who did everything she could to hide Jesus' answer to her prayer. doesn't work. When Jesus answers, the world sees it. When we respond in his compassion, the world will see it. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord, as we look at this incredible, incredible series of events. Um, that our Lord and Savior blessed his people with and you bless us within your word, Lord. I pray that our, um, our confidence, Lord, what we really, Father, I think can draw from this is a confidence that even if we're not the compassionate type as we would define ourselves, Father, we can know that in that moment of need, if we consciously and deliberately open our hearts and say, Lord, express your compassion through me, that is a prayer you would love to answer. Help us to so live, Father, that the world sees that, that they see you and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.